Welcome to Beers and Biscuits, a dog cast for the rest of us. I'm Nicole. And I'm Karen. And I forgot what the half was that I was supposed to say. <laughs> Grab a beverage. <laughs> Grab a beverage, give your dog a biscuit, and enjoy the show. <laughs> Well, welcome back, everybody. And what beverage do you have tonight, Nicole? So tonight I have Newburyport Brewing Company Sandbar Double IPA. It's good, heavier than I would normally drink, but it's it's really good. It's got a nice flavor to it. And what's your biscuit tonight, Karen? Tonight's biscuit is a fan favorite in this house, but then again, I think all of them have been fan favorites in this house, <laughs> but I want to uh, spotlight the pupper training treats. Um, all flavors are welcome in this house. However, the freeze-dried beef liver is uh, the biggest hit all around, so that is our biscuit for tonight. Nice, and we know if, if CJ and Rosie like it. Probably every dog's going to like it. I'm pretty sure Rosie would eat drier lint, but CJ will only accept the best of the best, and he will make it known if it's not up to his standards. <laughs> I I laugh only because Peter will actually dive in the basket for the, the dryer lint, so... <laughs> Well, I am just so excited for our guest tonight. She is a dear friend of mine. She started out as a client, um, but as we know, like most, well, not most, that's not true because she's special, um, but we do tend to become friends with our clients occasionally, at least the nice ones. So I have my dear friend, Chelsea. She is going to be talking to us a little bit about her experience working in the zoo and aquarium world. Um, she is currently out at the Topeka Zoo, um, and I can't wait to come visit her. So welcome, Chelsea. Hi. I'm so excited to be on here um, and explore how the zoo world and the uh, dog world kind of collide. <laughs> Wonderful. So we actually like to start our guests off with some light questions. We don't want to just jump right in. <laughs> um, so these are going to be a little silly. Have some fun with them. My first question for you is if you could be any insect in the world, which one would you be? Uh, insect, trying to think. We have a really cool insect here at the zoo called the jungle nymph. It's huge it looks like a giant praying mantis and the only reason i'm saying that is because it's a really cool bug <laughs> like and i just learned about them and the females get larger than the men <laughs> and they're they're just a really cool bug so the second question i have is if a movie would be made about your life what genre would it be and who would play you 
Gotta be rom-com, because I'm clumsy. I mean, I would love to say Jennifer Aniston, just because I love, like, I try to get my hair to look like hers all the time. <laughs> or maybe she's in Hunger Games. What's her name? Uh, Jennifer uh, Lawrence. No, yes, Lawrence? Yes, the Florence. Yeah, Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> I also am firmly, like, I have a firm belief that most girls that grew up in, like, the 90s all want Jennifer Aniston's hair. Like, like it just always looks so good. If you're ready, if you're warmed up now. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so I just was hoping that you could start us off by just talking a little bit about your responsibilities or your experiences at the zoos or the aquariums that you have worked at? Okay. So I started my career um, as an intern. To get into the exotics, you have to do lots of internships. My first one was an education internship. And then I did a zoo internship. And then I did a marine mammal internship. And then unfortunately, my dad passed between internships and my job. So I ended up being a dog groomer for six and a half years. And like that way I could at least keep the um, animal uh, handling experiences together. And then I was able to find a job at a local aquarium in New Hampshire. Then I saw that my mentor from my marine mammal internships place was hiring. And that's how I ended up at the Topeka Zoo. So that's a really fun roundabout that I'm now currently working under my mentor who taught me so much about training and uh, but basically my seven to four, we go in, we do all the checks, make sure all of our animals are healthy and alive. And then we do our cleaning. Um, that's where we feed, clean all the enclosures. And then I like to do in my afternoons, all the training and all the fun stuff. Um, and then I end my day by telling all my animals I love them. And I get to go home to my dog. And Maui is just the cutest. He's the best. That's your dog. Um, for anybody who doesn't know. <laughs> so. Obviously, we're going to relate this back to dog training. But one of the things that you and I had talked about the last time you were home was just how much zoos do that people aren't really aware of. Um, I know I certainly wasn't aware of some things like you were explaining to me about, forgive me, I believe it was like a the only word I can think of right now is stipend, and that's not the right word for it, but like a, a grant um, that was actually being sent over to, I think you said, like Africa to help with the tigers over there. So if you want to just share a little bit about what goes on behind the scenes at zoos that people might not know about. Yeah, so um, because we're uh, AZA Association Zoo, I don't know if I, like you want me to say that, but um, it's a really big <laughs> accreditation that like a lot of zoos and aquariums strive for. We part of our conservation effort is that part of our proceeds that we make actually goes and helps fund the rangers in Sumatra to help conserve the wildlife in Sumatra. So our Sumatran tiger program, we breed, help the animals under human care. So we have enough to provide homes for them for like the next hundred years. And then we get funds for them. And then the funds then go to basically pay for the whole annual salary of our Sumatran game warden, as we would call here. And his job out there is to go and collect snares. He literally will trudge through the wilderness of Sumatra and ID animals. He will protect them 
and like it's a really dangerous job like some of his buddies and everything have actually been killed in the action of protecting these animals from getting poached I just thought that that was so interesting because I think, unfortunately, a lot of people just look at zoos as a place that these wild animals are confined in. And a lot of people have like negative viewpoints of zoos. So I think it's just so important to really share about the the wonderful work that they do. Yeah, a lot of our guests don't realize that just by walking through the doors, you're contributing to conservation efforts. Like we have the big fauna, like the tigers and the elephants and the orangutans. Those all have like huge SSPs behind them, which stands for Species Survival Plans. But they're also supporting our death-fading beetles that we raise and then release into the wild so that (laughs) we can make sure that there are wild counterparts going along with the um, counterparts that we have under human care. Um, we have a really cool animal that I get to work with. It's a black-footed ferret and they were literally deemed extinct in the eighties. And then some guy's dog brought up one to his, uh, front porch and was like, oh, this isn't a regular ferret. Went to a taxidermy place. And the guy was like, this is a black-footed ferret. Where did you find it? They've been extinct for so many years. (laughs) They then went and collected a few and now there's a breeding program and we're able to actually put them back into their natural habitat now. That's amazing. Um, So what species do you work directly with the most? Uh, The most right now, um, because I'm what they call a relief keeper. So I get to run around in like the different areas of the zoo where like the primaries have their days off because everybody deserves days off. So I get to fill in while they're either on their days off or on vacation. For the animal side, and primarily in our small our small verts, which um, have snakes, the black-footed ferret, the opossum, uh, African-caped porcupine, um, skunks. It's just a random hob- hodgepodge of animals. <laughs> and then I also get to work in our large carnivore, um, like actually I'm there tomorrow, um, where I'm working with um, African-painted dogs, uh, African lions, and Sumatran tigers tomorrow. <laughs> Every day is a little different for me. I'm trained in like a diff- couple of different areas. So That's awesome. That's so cool. All I know is I 100% could not do your job because I'm like, they want me to pet them. They, that's what they want. That tiger, <laughs> he, he wants me to go in there. <laughs> so I would be eaten. <laughs> I would be eaten alive by a tiger. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, we have a really cool system. It's called the two lock, two key system. So we can't go into the dangerous animals unless somebody is right there. We literally have two different colored locks. I have a green lock. The other person has a blue lock. I can't undo the blue lock. So it's a really good step to keep us all safe. So an accident does happen. They dealt with a Karen before. They dealt with me, apparently. They're like, oh, we got to stop this from happening again. We have domestic ferrets that um, I work with, and those are the ones that I get all my loves out on. Like, I literally pick them up and put them to my mouth and go, I love you. (laughs) So that's how, like, at the end of the day, if I really need to, like, hold something that isn't my dog, I just go up to the uh, the, uh, um, domestic ferrets and love on them. (laughs) So I think this is kind of a good segue. We might jump back because I do have some more follow-up questions on all of this. 
But you have been sharing with me a little bit of the work you've been doing with the Black-Footed Ferret. I forget her, his name. Um, but it, it's really interesting. And if, if you want, would you share a little bit about what you've been trying to accomplish? Yeah, sure. So our Black-Footed Ferret's name is Olive. Um, she came from us, um, from the, I think, Toronto Zoo or something. It's part of, she was part of the breeding program, but Olive decided she didn't want to be a mother. So she is now an exhibit animal. Lately, what I've been working with her is just basic targeting and clicker training. And that's so that I can make it easier for her to shift from one area of her enclosure to the next and then eventually I want to be able to get her on a scale so we can weigh her regularly. Because right now we can't do that. Because she is protective contact, which means I can't literally pick her up or touch her even though she's like two pounds. She's one of the animals that if I touched her, she would bite my fingers off. So there's always a piece of plexiglass in front between us. We drilled two little holes where I can put a piece of meat on a skewer and stick the meat into the little hole comes over she eats it and then she's like oh yay I want more of that but it's been really cool I've gotten maybe eight sessions in now with her she is pretty good at targeting um so my next adventure with her is once we find a scale that'll fit in the enclosure is to get her on the scale but until then I want to like see if I can train her to do body visuals so she'll maybe press the back end up against the wall so we could do maybe voluntary injections or something like that with her it really is the pictures that you've sent me again. I'm like, I want to pet that. I, I, I want to, I want to pet it. <laughs> um, but I just think it's really an important topic and it's a really good way to transition into a topic of dog training and what we do, because like you said, you literally cannot touch this animal, but you are able to get it to do things through the use of positive reinforcement. Yeah. All of our training is positive because there's no way you're going to tell a 350 pound tiger what to do because <laughs> our tigers are like the same way as the ferret where we don't go in with our tigers um, everything's done through a barrier and we're able to not only do blood draws through their tails but we taught our female to do an ultrasound when she hopefully gets pregnant <laughs> we can ultrasound her to see if what her cub development is and you're not going to be able to do that without building a relationship with these animals by positive reinforcement whether that like takes one session or multiple sessions or we don't push our animals to do anything because that's when you see aggression so just to be clear you're not putting prong collars or e-collars on the tigers to get them to want to cooperate with you right just to make sure i heard that correctly yeah, no, we don't use any aversive to make our tigers do anything. It's basically big pieces of meat that we import from Canada, and they will work for that. Or sometimes they just work for, like, our attention, even. They do like attention. See, they want me to pet it, or them. They want me to pet them. <laughs> Still no. So that brings up a question for me, especially working with the larger species like the tigers, doing some of the more positive reinforcement type training, the target training, the clicker training, the stationing, things like that. What about the ways that you are trying to make sure that you're meeting species appropriate needs in other areas? 
Like how, so how would you do that for like the tigers, like fulfilling the enrichment need, other species appropriate needs that they have? Uh, So that's part of our daily routine is that we need to provide enrichment every day. And we actually have a program that keeps track of what we've done for the day. For like the tigers, for instance, one day we might scatter perfume all around the exhibit um, so that they have to go around, like they go around and they smell different scents. Sometimes, like, I bring the domestic ferrets around the zoo every once in a while, and we'll bring them up to the viewing glass, and it's just another animal for them to see. The other day, we had a goat walking around as enrichment for both the goat and the other animals. So we just do different types of things every day. It could be food. It could be visual. It could be learning a new behavior that doesn't really have any husbandry things attached to it, but just something to provide mental stimulation. We gave our male lion a box with a bone in it that was hung up on a chain that he had to climb a pole to get to. So part of our job is also being creative and trying to come up with new ways to enrich our animals. We want to make sure that it's things that are natural for the animal to do. Something that's also educational for our um, guests that come in. So every time that we do an enrichment session, we need to label how that animal reacted to the enrichment, what, how long it spent time with that enrichment. Did the animal actually enjoy it? Like, was it a positive like experience or was it a negative um, experience? I have more questions, but did you have a question, Nicole? Um, I did. So my question is, what are some common myths? about your job that you want to debunk? Oh, the biggest one is that I get to play with the animals all day. Um, Everybody's like, oh, you get to go in and cuddle the tigers. What what was it the other day? They wanted to know why I wasn't in with our porcupine, which is actually a valid question because some places you can't, like just like tigers, some places you can go in, but it's not safe. It's You want a barrier between semi-dangerous animals or dangerous animals in the tiger's aspect. So that's like one of the biggest things is like we're just going in and playing with the animals all day. No, it's a lot of um, picking up poop and washing dishes. So much paperwork. (laughs) So many paperwork. (laughs) Another myth is that, that like we're just there for animals. We are also there to educate the public. We are educators. We are talking about not only the animals we take care of, but we're also talking about the animals out in the wild. So that's like the biggest one is that we're just there to hold these animals captive and we don't care about anything other than like making money. No, we're trying to preserve species outside of our outside of our zoo. So I don't know if you can if you can answer this or not, because we didn't really prep you on the questions. But so what would be your best guesstimate of the percentage of animals that are there as part of like a conservation program or there as part of a re you know repopulation things like that versus animals that are just there just because they're there in our zoo in particular or like every zoo because i don't know every zoo no just yours most of our animals are there for like or at least part of a SSP. And part of being in that program is you have to give back to the wildlife for those specific species. Um, for repopulation wise, like the black footed ferret is a big one. The death fanning beetles is another one. The monarch butterfly tagging, um, which is going on right now. Sometimes we do species that we don't even have at the zoo. Like we are now part of the Chilean flamingo conservation. Like we give money to that. A lot of the animals, like, oh, the elephants, like, there's an SSP for that. We have two different species that are together, which is really rare. 
our African and our Asian are together. They're two old ladies. <laughs> They're just roommates. Let's see. We have a black bear that was rescued from the wild um, because she was too young when she like lost her mother. So she's there as a rehabbed animal. Same thing with our opossum. Lost the mother. So now she's there. They're there to the end of their lives. Our hospice care is amazing. <laughs> we make sure that every, they have everything that they ever need. So then I guess my question, but I think we also, both of us had kind of the same question is, what do you see? Because you've been on both sides of the fence. I've never worked in a zoo or an aquarium, mostly because I would be eaten. We've established that. Um, but what do you see as like the overlap between what happens at zoos and what happens in the dog world? As far as we can narrow it down a little bit to like the training aspect. Yeah. So basically our tra- like training is training is the concept. Whenever you step up to an animal, it's training. Your relationship is the same. You're building up your relationship, trying to put as much positive information into that bank that you have with that animal before you ever try to take anything out of that bank. So we spend a lot of time when we're first introduced with our animals. For instance, like our marine mammal, like if you're working with a marine mammal, you spend months next to the pool, just like sitting there and hanging out with them and maybe feeding them some fish before you're ever allowed to even send them off for a simple behavior. When I was an intern with marine mammals, my job was basically like I got to like hold animals and like do like the basic husbandry behaviors. Like I got to have them turn over so I could see their underside, but I was never training any new behavior. That was for people who had developed a relationship. And I think that's really important with dogs too. Like even grooming, I was you know, I like to get puppies in and I wouldn't do a full haircut the first time I got a puppy because I wanted to establish this poor little puppy that I'm just going to maybe pet your head, clean your ears, try to do a nail trim. And if it didn't work out, you know, come back and we'll do it in small sessions. Both of them, you don't want to push your animals. You always want to like read your animals, make sure you're not ending on a bad session. You want to make sure you're ending on a good session. That way they're not seeing you as the person who made like who hurt me or made me do something I didn't want to do. It's always, oh hey, I'm willing to like work with you. It's a partnership on all sides. I think your comments alone on just starting a puppy off with just getting them on the table even is such an important thing for owners to know because I've worked with so many puppies or dogs in general that have been gone to a groomer and well-intentioned but they've been forced to go through this experience and now we have this groomer trauma we have to kind of try to undo so that's a it's a beautiful takeaway right there yeah I mean as a groomer and I didn't work for a private groomer I, I did work for a big box company grooming so it was a little bit harder to like I had to do what my manager said, but when I was a grooming salon manager, I kind of got to do whatever I wanted. Um, So I would constantly just be like, Hey, listen, your dog didn't do like your dog shut down on me. I'm not going to go any further. Come back in two days or whatever you can come in and we'll finish and I won't charge or whatever, just so that I could establish a relationship with that animal. I never wanted to ended on a bad note. I always wanted to make sure that the dog was okay with what I did because I'm not going to, like, I possibly wasn't going to be the only one to groom this animal. So I wanted to set it up for success throughout its whole life, not just with me. 
Right. And I think that's a really valid point to make that we don't need to rush things. You know, it kind of reminds me of like, you know, recommending to clients that have a, you know, a brand new puppy or even a newly rescued dog that you can do things like contact your vet and say, can we do a happy visit or just driving to the vet and walking, walking in and getting a couple treats, saying hello, and then leaving and approach things that might have the potential to be overwhelming in much smaller pieces. Like what you're saying about, you know, working with the marine mammals or the larger animals is you're not going to just walk right in there day one and be like, I'm going to make this 1200 pound fur seal do what I want. (laughs) Like it's not going to work. We break it down into simple steps for those animals, but we're so reluctant sometimes to do it for our companion animals. Yeah, that's like a huge thing what I'm finding with the pet industry. Like I've seen a lot of people go into this mindset of, well, I'm the human. I'm going to make you do whatever I want. The simple thing was like have them use their brain. It's not fair to the animal. It's so much easier to have that respect and that partnership with an animal. I don't want to fight with an animal to do their nails. It's so much easier when like they have that positive reinforcement of like, oh, hey, I know it's cool. You're just going to do my nails. I get a treat after. Why do it the hard way when you can do it the easy way? But one of the things you said um, for vet care specifically, we actually have our vets come and like participate in our training sessions so that our animals don't associate our vets with bad things. Right. I did work at a facility that the vet staff was not part of the participation. And we had a male lion that charged the viewing glass every time he saw the vet. They do know, hey, you're the one who shot me with that tranquilizer gun and Versus when we have an operation, we can hand inject the sleepy drug. Animals are so much better about it. And like participating in their own healthcare makes the animals healthier. It makes them less stressed. We had a situation where we brought a tiger in from one place that didn't crate train. And so they hand injected him. They put the animal in the crate while it was asleep. It came to us. It took a while for that tiger to settle down. Versus the other tiger that we got in, they crate trained. It came to us. They were cool as beans. They were like, okay, where do I get my food? Well, that kind of that kind of makes me think of just that scenario that you just laid out where they didn't do the work beforehand to get the tiger used to the crate. So they're building in a stressful or traumatic event around the crate around the moving procedures, around getting to your facility, getting out of the crate, and that all can carry over. And that that kind of just reminded me of a lot of times what happens when, you know, somebody gets a new puppy that maybe is from a breeder that I've had this so many times where the breeder is a farm breeder, and then they buy the puppy and they live in like downtown New York City. They're being shipped thousands of miles and then they're going right into their new guardian's hands. There's not that pre-work to expose the puppy to things that it might need in the future so that those things are less traumatic and are less stressful. And we kind of almost downplay that those things can be traumas and can be stressful and that that, those things can carry over. So, you know, for you, taking in the tiger that did have that training was so much easier 
because it, it didn't come with the baggage of having the added trauma of missing out on things that it should have been taught. I mean, it definitely made our life a little bit easier, made the tiger's life a little bit easier. I mean, both of them are now well-adjusted and working great. It was fun and also scary <laughs> at the same time because having, I think he's 350 pounds. He might have only been 200 at that point. Having him charge the fence, a little scary. And then we're not supposed to react to that that behavior. You're just like standing there still while the tiger is charging the fence at you. <laughs> So I have a question about this, and I'm going to try to bring this all together with dogs. And I hope that you'll be willing to chat a little bit about it. You do not have to, though, because I do know sometimes this is a touchy topic. And I've actually had this conversation with two different people um, in the past two days. Um, So I think it's very important. So we were just talking about like having compassion, giving them time setting them upright. And we can do all of these things. But especially in the dog world, I find that sometimes what the human wants can unfortunately put undue stress on the animals. What I'm getting at here is specifically the idea of potty training. Because I know you and I have had plenty of conversations about Mr. Maui's potty training. And like I said, I've talked to two separate people that have older dogs and they're struggling. And I just want to also shed light on the fact that it's it's okay if your dog is in potty training. But do you want to tell us a little bit about that journey with Maui? Oh, yeah. Okay. So Maui is three years old. He was, and I'm wondering if maybe because his previous, like his breeder, had him outside. So maybe I'm wondering if that would be part of his issues is that I'm having a horrible time. Like he's part like mostly there. Like if I'm home all day, he's fine about letting me know that he needs to go out. It's when I go to work where most likely we'll come home to a little surprise on the carpet. And it's so frustrating because I know that like when I come home, I'm not supposed to be like, Maui, what did you do? Like, why did you poop on the carpet? Oh, honey, I'm so sorry. I'm not yelling at you. Or like be mad at him because I know that he's not going to like put the two together. So it takes a lot of me to go, okay. And then what I'm like trying to do is if I come home and there's nothing on the floor, I just make a huge, like, I don't know if I'm making a huge deal for nothing, but I've been making a huge deal. Like, yay, good job. I can't believe you like I'm great job and I immediately take him out and he does his thing and then I come home and some weeks it's great other weeks it's bad it makes you feel like I can do so many things with these amazing wild animals I come home and my own dog is not perfect it's a mental struggle sometimes what am I doing wrong I mean I think we've all been there unfortunately I know the Rosie our new dog who's a year and a half is still having accidents But just like you were saying, where she grew up, she was outside. She was not set up to succeed. Um, So I think it's just really important that we look at the overall picture and how we're setting these animals up to live in a world that they don't understand unrealistic expectations sometimes. Well, and I guarantee, Chelsea, if you had an elephant living in your house with you, that you'd be picking up poop every day that's my nightmare that is my nightmare 
I mean, they are not potty trained at all, so. <laughs> right. So so have a little have a little grace with yourself, right? Like you are able to do really cool and amazing things, but one doesn't negate the other. If I don't know if I'm saying that right, but you know, being successful in that venture doesn't automatically make you unsuccessful working with your dog just because you're struggling with this issue. And I know that that as a guardian, that that can be really hard. As trainers, we go through that a lot too, because not every trainer has a perfect dog, but we're trying to help other people. And we might see advances with our clients that we aren't necessarily seeing with our own dog sometimes. For Chelsea, the dog guardian, I guess, what are some of the differences that you feel that you have found working with the zoo animals and working with your own dog at home as a guardian? Honestly, sometimes I feel like I have more patience for my work animals than I do for my own dog. And I hate that. But like, I come home and I've just spent anywhere from eight to 14 hours at work. And I come home and I just have no energy sometimes. And, and then I beat myself up for it. Because I know I need to put energy into my own animal. So like, that's the like, biggest thing is like, I'm like, okay. And I know what I'm supposed to do. It's just having that energy. And I guess that's the biggest thing is like, I'm like, oh, I take a little bit more. What's the word? Um, I feel a little bit more lazy when it comes to my own dog than I do with, with the bigger animals. And that's why I go see people like Karen. Like, can you critique my training? See what I'm missing? Because you can't always see what yourself is doing. I don't want to gloss over what you've just said, because I think it is so important, <clears throat> Matthew, <laughs> to acknowledge that it is 100% okay to skip a day, to not take your dog out, to just meet their basic needs. I think so many people feel what you feel because society has put sometimes unrealistic expectations on what our dogs are supposed to do and it's just not fair and I hope that you can maybe find some grace it's such an important conversation to have this alone could be its own podcast topic because so many people feel what you feel as as humans we have a tendency to negate or downplay our own needs and I feel like sometimes if we aren't taking care of ourselves first, then we aren't going to have the energy or be able to be present for our dogs in the way that they might need. Now, to piggyback on what Karen said, that doesn't mean that we need to do all of the things every single day because you're a human being. What you described is really you're just saying I'm just a normal human being. I get tired. I get frustrated. And when I work a long day, yeah, it is a little bit frustrating to have a dog that isn't fully potty trained. Now, just that in itself is frustrating. If you've worked a long day and then you're coming home into a frustrating environment, that's taking and that's draining even more from you. So it's normal to then not have the energy and the awareness to then be like, 
okay, well, now I got to bang out all of your needs and make sure I get these in before dinner because I got to do this all over again tomorrow. And so I think like what Karen said is we do have to, we do need to have grace with ourselves and understand that we can't meet the needs of another being if we aren't meeting our own needs. Yeah, I mean, the whole animal field, like every anybody who deals with animals, whether it be exotics or domesticated animals, it, there's a whole thing of compassion fatigue going around with all of our industries. People who are younger than me are like, oh, I'm so exhausted. I got to get out of this field because of it's so draining. And like, you have to find outside hobbies that allow you to kind of recoup your own energy so you can be better for your animals that you take care of or your own or your own animals. And it's hard sometimes. We actually talked about this in a previous uh, podcast about how it doesn't shut off at the end of the day. It is a 24-7 job. Even if you are not physically doing the job, you are thinking about these animals. And I think that's important for people to know. So I have one last question. You can approach it from just the zoo, just the dog, or if you want to approach it from kind of both. How do you think we can move these fields forward? I think education and demonstration. Like in the zoo world, if you don't see about it, you don't care about it. That's a big thing with exotic. We didn't care about orcas until orcas were under human care. I don't think people are going to care about positive reinforcement until they see how easy it is. Like, and I don't mean like it's easy to do. I mean, it's easier on the animal. It's better for them. You're going to have a better life with your animal and less stress if you put in the work. I think that's how we're going to ha- like have to approach it is the education plus actually doing clinics or like being able to show people this is working so much better. <laughs> so on the zoo side, a lot of that actual training part, like let's say the the cooperative care for for husbandry that isn't necessarily public facing. So they might see the end product where, you know, you might do a demonstration, but they do they usually get to see the actual training of a lot of these things happening in real time? So it depends on the zoo. Like our zoo, uh, the one that I'm working at pre- uh, now, Topeka, is super open about everything we do. We, we're very open about it. We can film whatever we want. And we're proud of the fact that we're, that we're able to work with these animals like this. We don't shy away from anything. Like, we will even post things when our animals unfortunately pass away to do the, like, old age. Are very open, and I feel like that's why our zoo actually has such a great following, is because we're not going to lie to them. Like, that's something that the field needs to do. It's like, we can't always just show the happy stuff. We need to show the sad stuff. We need to show what goes into it. We did a series of how we trained the porcupine to get voluntary nail trims, which I was super proud of that training. So we bring our guests slash customers into that with us. And because of that, we have people from different countries who care about these animals just as much as we do. And it's because we're so open about it. I have learned so much from you, but also from the Facebook page for the Topeka Zoo. And I just think it's really phenomenal. And I also want to just real quick drop a tidbit that you dropped on me. So correct me if I'm not getting this right. But we had talked about the idea of like what to look for for like a good zoo. 
But you specifically said one of the things people can look out for is if it's a zoo that is letting you handle animals, that probably isn't a good zoo. At least this is what I'm being taught. Specifically for large carnivores, it's not necessarily the best practices. They're not necessarily putting the money into the conservation. That's one thing about keepers that I'm learning is we go to other places and we look, we're we not looking necessarily at the animals. I mean, we are, but we're also looking at like, oh, hey, how are their enclosures bettering their animal welfare? We're always like trying to figure out what's going to be better for our animals. I was listening to your podcast that you, I think, released either the other day. Uh, you guys were talking about how the dog community, you guys want them to communicate better together. That's something that our industry does really well is we're always constantly talking to each other and being like, I'm having a trouble training this paw present. How did you do that? And we'll have somebody like chomping at the bit to tell you how they did it. We're so collaborative. That sounds like a dream. So, uh, Nicole, did you have any other questions before we start to wrap up? I did. I had one last question, Chelsea. What piece of, I guess, what one piece of advice as Chelsea, the dog guardian, would you give to your, okay, let me rephrase that. So we're going to cut all of that out. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So my question for Chelsea, the dog guardian is knowing what you know now, you know, having the background in working with dogs and other animals in various capacities, what one piece of advice, if you could go back, would you give your younger self? Patience um, is a big thing. Have patience. Um, Oh, don't set myself up for one species. Keep your door open for anything related because you never know what you're going to fall in love with. Keeping an open open mind to anything that comes your way. Uh, taking advantage of any kind of opportunity that may cross your way. I've been in the animal field for probably almost 20 years now, but like I've never been to that level of, oh, I can call myself an expert or anything because I don't think you can ever be an expert. I'm also not at that level of where like I can teach you something. <laughs> Maybe my telling my younger self, don't be so humble sometimes. Like you are good. I think that's really great advice. And I think a lot of people who work with dogs also have that. But I also think it's important to have that approach to it because there are certain people in the industry, I won't name names, although I want to, that don't have that humble side to them. So it's finding that balance. But I think that's beautiful advice. Right. It's a fine line sometimes to be able to appreciate your own skills and what you bring to the table, but also still be able to learn from other people. And I feel like that balance, like Karen was saying, I think that balance of I have value and I bring value to this profession, but I'm also able to learn from other people. And that's a big thing that's missing for us. There's definitely people who like are just starting that you can learn from. Like I love learning from my interns. I think those are the big things that like in in our field, being patient, being open, and also having confidence. Like that's that that self-doubt is so hard sometimes. Definitely. Well, I have just so enjoyed this conversation. I think learning about 
zoo and aquarium systems and what goes on kind of behind the scenes and how it can relate to dog training has just been really, really fascinating. So thank you for taking the time and being a part of this conversation. <laughs> thank you so much for allowing me to be like part of this. I'm really excited and it's great to talk to um, other people in the training profession, no matter what we're training. Well, <laughs> that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and please don't forget to give your dog a biscuit from us until next time. <laughs>